So you guys, we're in Revelation 21. So what we're doing here, if you haven't been, is we're just looking at the very last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. And I love these chapters, but they're complicated. What we've kind of already said is that we all need a gigantic anchor of hope. We need to know that something's going to be okay, especially when things are not okay, that hope has enormous power in our lives, more even than gratitude. We need gratitude, but really what we need is hope that things will be okay. And the ultimate okayness of everything is that one day Jesus is going to come back, raise us from the dead, bring heaven to earth, and he's going to make everything the way he was always meant to be. He's going to, he's going to restore all things. He's going to make all things new. And we're looking into trying to understand how that, what that's going to look like as he's describing it in these last two chapters. But there are some barriers for this because he chose to write this picture to us um, in, a, in a genre, in a, in a method of writing, in a style of writing that's not very familiar, that has strange rules and that is complex. Um, we call it apocalyptic literature, which basically means to reveal or to uncover, to make a mystery known. But the problem is when he reveals it, we're still like, I don't know what it means. It doesn't make any sense. And the secret, the, the, the secret decoder ring, if you will, of Revelation is the Old Testament. If you want to make sense of the images and the, and the metaphors and all the pictures, you have to know what is he pulling it from. And uh, we've seen a number. What, what are some of the passages that we've already seen in the last few weeks that are like go-to places for John? What, what chapters of the Old Testament does he seem to really like? Isaiah. Okay, Isaiah like writ large all over the place. Do you remember any particular chapters in Isaiah? 60 what? 60, okay. And, and what we saw the very first time, that the, the actual phrase, new heavens. Yeah, you guys can flip through your book and kind of cheat a little bit there. The, 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 very, the phrase, new heavens, new earth, is all from Isaiah 65 and 66. We saw a lot of stuff there. Um, what else have we seen besides Isaiah? Ezekiel. Ezekiel. He loves Ezekiel. And this whole passage from 40 to 48. Um, if you go back and you read Ezekiel 40 to 48, you'll see this guy running around measuring this temple. It's super obvious that this is what he's drawing from when he writes a lot of this material in, in chapter 21. Very good. Any other passages seem significant that are worth knowing in the Old Testament to make sense of Revelation? Who, say that louder. Daniel. Daniel's a huge one. Daniel chapter 7, of course, is a biggie. That's the whole thing of the beast coming up out of the sea and getting slain and killed and thrown in the fire and all kinds of the horns and the heads and all this stuff. Lots and lots of stuff that John uses is coming out of that, that section of Daniel. Very good. Um, we're going to read this, and there'll be a little bit of review here. So this gives you a chance to kind of like remember stuff. So let me, let me read this first part of the passage to you. I think where we're at is ch chapter 21, and we'll start in verse 15. And see if any of this doesn't kind of ring a bell for you. It, he kind of overlays and repeats some things, so some of this might sound familiar. So Revelation 21, verse 15 and following, he says, The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod, and he found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long. He measured its wall, and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. And the foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third, oh, I should have practiced these because I don't know how to say these words, chalcedony, we're going to make this up, the fourth emerald, the fifth 
sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth, what does that say? Chrysoprase? Is that a word? Has anybody heard that? <laughs> the eleventh, what is that, jacinth? Jason. Okay, we all believe that's true. The twelfth amethyst, the twelve gates were twelve pearls, and each gate made of a single pearl. That is a big pearl, okay? And the great street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass, okay? So some of this we've already talked about. What are the jewels all about? Why is everything made out of, you know, sapphire and emerald and whatever else they said, carnelian? Why? What is that? That's an image. It's, a, it's pointing to something. What is it? Yeah, Suzanne? Okay, why? Okay, that is true, but can't, why? Prove it. The, the jewels that were on the priests. Yeah, he Exactly right. So do you know this? Like, so the priests had this garment they had to wear. I would have really had a hard time being an Israel priest. Right? It could have been rough. But they got this thing with all these like jewels on the thing. In fact, I, I probably have it in your book. Did I? Did I? I hope I did. Let's see. Uh, yes. So Exodus 28, 17. Okay, this is what this is about. Then Mount, this is on this ephod on this breastplate that these guys wore then mount four rows of precious stones on it in the first row there shall be a ruby topaz and a barrel in the second row a turquoise a sapphire an emerald and the third a jacinth an agate and an amethyst and in the fifth row a chrysolite an onyx and a jasper mount them in gold filigree settings there's 12 stones each stone representing one of the 12 tribes of israel so as the priest went about on his duties he like it's like he he bore on himself he carried on himself the representation of each of these tribes and when um when john sees the vision he sees the foundation of the city is made out of these okay so that's what's that's what it's pointing to it's, it's pointing us back to this to the breastplate with all these things but what does it mean we see it here and it represents the 12 tribes of Israel. What, what is he saying here? What are we seeing that the city is or the city comp- is comprised of? Sure. So what Bob is saying is that the, so all of this imagery is drawn from the temple rituals of Israel, but in this setting there is no temple. It's sort of it's kind of like there is no temple, and everything is temple, right? And that's really, there's no distinct there's no temple that's separated out, but the whole place is right. And the, and what the essence of the temple, what the essence of the city, it's the it's the people of God. What, what is, it's kind of like we say, you know, the church, okay, there's this building and, you know, we've paid, like, whatever we paid, $8 million for the building. But Church of the Holy Spirit is not the building. Church of the Holy Spirit is Sylvia, right? We are the temple, the city, the place is us. We are, we are the people and the place. And by the way, not, this is, this maybe is beyond our purposes for today, but I'll just, I'll drop this one, I'll hit it. Did you know that you have been grafted into Israel? He's not saying it's distinctly Jewish as opposed to Gentiles, because though the kingdom was given here, the kingdom, the king is Jewish, and he's come for a Jewish people, they opened the doors wide, and they let all of us, most of you probably, maybe there's a couple of Jews among us, but for the most part, all of us Gentiles have been invited in, that you once were far away, but you have been brought near. You used to be outside the people of God, and now you have become his people, 
And what God has done in Christ is he, he, he destroys this dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And he lets a bunch of Gentile dogs like us come into the party. So when you see these, all these jewels, don't look at that and be like, well, first of all, it's just pretty, pretty colors. It's not. It's representative of the people of God. But then don't also don't say, oh, it's representative of those people of God. This is for the Jews. We are invited in, and God shares all things with us. And then he commands us, listen, if we get to take place in the spiritual benefit that, that it belongs to the Jews, if we get invited to their party, should we not also, therefore, share our very selves with them? And so there's, there's meant to be this rich, reciprocal relationship among the people of God across all ethnicities, all backgrounds. That's what's prefigured in these, not prefigured, but that's what, what's represented in these colorful stones that comprise the foundation of the city. Okay, so that's what that means. What about the cubeness? Why is the thing as wide and long and high in, in all the same dimensions? Do you remember this one? Dark. What is it? Go loud, Terry. Or the Kat? Ark of the covenant. The ark. No. Wait, say it louder. The Ark of the Covenant. Okay, okay, close. It's not the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is not a cube, but it lives in a cube. Okay, where does the Ark of the... Well, or does it? Yeah, it does. It's the... It's the Holy of Holies. The only cube I'm aware of in the Old Testament is the Holy of Holies. And so again, with the idea that there is no temple slash everything's temple, the reason the thing is, the city is shaped like a cube is it is hearkening to the Holy of Holies. Every, and, and the Holy of Holies, nobody gets to go into that. It's a place, of, it's a forbidden zone. You go in it once a year with a rope tied around your ankle so they can pull you out if you die. Instead, <laughs> the whole thing, we get to go into the center of the thing. Years ago, Kelly and I went to China and there's, a, there's this, um, has anyone ever been to the Forbidden City in, in um, Beijing? Once upon a time, nobody could ever go into the Forbidden City. It was like the, you know, the... Forbidden. It was forbidden, right? It's the place where the emperor or the, what do you call a Chinese king, emperor, whatever that dude is, right? And nobody could go. But now it's like anybody can walk through the place. It's a tourist attraction. What he's saying is that the Holy of Holies, this forbidden zone, is now blown wide open. And it's going to be available to all of us. Um, why is everything gold? I don't know if we talked about this, but did you notice that everything is glistening? Just for the sake of everybody here, back up just a little bit and tell people, why was it forbidden to go into the Holy of Holies? Okay, good question. Why was it forbidden to go into the Holy of Holies? Because God was literally there. Okay, so in some sense, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But in some sense, he's especially here. And if you go in there, you'll die. Like you just, his holiness will overwhelm and destroy you. And yet, in this world that he's making, we will have access to him. We're going to be changed such that we can sustain existence in his very presence. And we get to go into the cube. Is that what you want, babe? All right, good. All right, gold. Why is everything shiny? It's been purified. Okay, it's pure. So the gold is pure. It's almost like transparent glass, he says. Yes. What's the Old Testament... Um, you know, imagery that we're getting from this gold. And you can look in your book if you want to cheat. And by the way, there's a typo in here. It's not 1 Kings 16. It's 1 Kings 6. So fix that. If you look it up, you'll think I've made it up. Here's 1 Kings 6. The inner sanctuary, this is of the temple again, 
was 20 cubits long, 20 wide, 20 high, and he overlaid the inside with pure gold. And he also overlaid the altar of cedar. And Solomon covered the inside of the temple with pure gold. And he extended gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary, which was overlaid with gold. So he overlaid the whole interior with gold. He also overlaid with gold the altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary. Gold, 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 gold. And so when you hear that like this, you know, the streets of heaven are paved with gold, that's not some random thing to say. It's all, hard, it's all temple language. Every way that he can, he's saying it's the temple, it's the temple, the city is the temple. There is no temple, but the whole thing's temple. God is present there, and you get him. You get access to him. The essence of this world to come is unfettered access to God. That's the great, that's the great promise, okay? That's mostly review, I think. What's I don't think review, I don't think we've looked at this, is the next thing. And if I'm being honest, honest with you, this is probably why we're doing this series. Because uh, several weeks ago, some evening, I was at home, and I was looking at this, and I just think this is extraordinary. And this is really what captivated me and motivated me to do this whole thing. So listen to this, and we'll try to unpack what's going on. Revelation 21, we'll, kick, we'll pick it up at verse 22. He says this, I did not see a temple in the city. All right, we've been over this. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. And the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Okay, that, we're going to unpack that. On no day... Will its gates ever be shut? For there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Second time he says that. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Okay? Everything I just read comes from one source in the Old Testament. What is it? You can cheat if you want to see. There's one chapter in the Old Testament that he is mining right here. It is Isaiah 60. Now, I would be a little bit surprised if you've ever heard a sermon on Isaiah 60. Um, you know, this passage is the kind, we, there's some pages we rip off and hold them up and, and do stuff with them. This is not generally a well-known passage. You're like, 60, what is that? I don't know what that is. Okay, so we're going to look at it because I think Isaiah 60 is amazing. And if you, I'd love you to turn back to just. You can put down Revelation and go back to the original source. Isaiah 60 is, is, is central to John's understanding of the future world, which means we just want to go back and do the work to understand what was going on. Why did, why did Isaiah write chapter 60? So I'm going to read it to you, and uh, we'll go through this. And I won't, I'll probably skip, skip a little bit because it's kind of long, but I want you to hear some of this imagery, and we'll talk about what was happening there, and then that in turn will shape and constrain our understanding of what will happen in the world to come, okay? So Isaiah 60, verse 1. Isaiah says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Can you get a sense of what's the context? What's going on right now? Is it a happy time or a sad time in Israel? It's for not for, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Lily. Right. So there's happiness is about to break forth, 
right? But it's breaking forth out of a time of sadness, right? Darkness covers the earth. Thick darkness is, it's kind of like the dawn before, what is it? It's always darkest before dawn, it's that kind of thing. So there's this, there's this heaviness. Israel is, is oppressed. I mean, the nation, first of all, like the northern nation of Israel got destroyed by Assyria. Now Babylon is coming upon us, and there's fear, and there's dread, and everything's horrible. And then it says, verse 3, nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the hip. What he's saying is your children that have been banished, that are long, they're all, they're all coming back. Everything you have lost and all that you have suffered will be restored. He says, then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. All right, so he's writing, he's writing to a people that are beaten down and discouraged and have lost. Nations are not their friends. The nations are their enemies. And they look about them and they see ruin. But Isaiah says, no, 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 no. Look, 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 look. Every, you get everything back. All that you have suffered, all that has been lost, all that has been taken from you, you're going to get it all back. And the wealth, the, these nations that have grieved you, their very wealth is going to come to you. We'll skip the stuff about the camels because that's a little bit trickier for us to get our heads around. Go down to verse 10. Listen to this. Foreigners will rebuild your walls and their kings will serve you. Though in anger I struck you, in favor I will show you compassion. Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut day or night. What does that mean? That your gates will always be open? You're safe, right? You don't need, there's no like you know, Mongol hordes coming over the wall. The, the doors are open. And because the doors are open, what happens? Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut day or night so that people may bring you the wealth of the nations, their kings led in triumphal procession. What happens with the open gates? <coughs> Say it again. The nations come. Nations come. And what do they bring, Robin? Well, they're bringing their wealth and giving it. Yeah, you get all of their best up, their best, their best artifacts, their best art, their best produce, their you know their best food, their best music, all of their good stuff. You get it all. And he says, for the kingdom or nation that that will not serve you will perish. It will be utterly ruined. And the glory of Lebanon will come to you. The juniper, the fir, the cypress, all together. That's basically like, hey, you got this next door neighbor, and they've got like the best woods, the best hardwoods, the best trees. It's all going to be yours. We're going to have. We're going to import everything. He says, we're going to adorn my sanctuary, which, by the way, had been desecrated. I will glorify the place for my feet. The children of your oppressors will come bowing before you. All those that hated you and that dominated you and stood on your neck, they will come back, and the relationships are going to be inverted. Verse 15, though you've been forsaken and hated with no one traveling through, I will make you the everlasting pride and the joy of all generations. You will drink the milk of nations and be nursed at royal breasts. And then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior. Over and over again, he's saying with these foreign nations, these other places, all of their good stuff is going to become your stuff. Okay? He says, you'll know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I'm going to bring you gold and silver in place of iron. Instead of wood, I will bring you bronze and iron in place of stones. What does that mean? Why gold instead of bronze, silver in place of iron, iron in place of stones? Wood in place of bronze. Why is that? Or bronze in place of wood? 
Everything is upgraded. Everything. We just go boop. Everybody's like click up one level, right? Everything gets better. Verse 18, no longer will violence be heard in your land, no ruin or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates will be praised. Listen to this. Does this sound familiar? The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. Why not? That sounds bad. I like the sun. (laughs) For the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Now, by the way, in case you're a literalist, don't be, okay? He just, what did he just say about the sun? In that verse right there? No more sun, right? Okay, the sun is gone. So some would say, yeah, in the new world to come, there's going to be no sun. But watch the next verse. The sun will never set. Okay, so which is it? Okay, there will be no sun, and the sun will never set. Okay, so what you want to grab, he's not literally saying, like, you know, the the burning ball of fire is going to go away, right? The sun, you won't need the sun anymore because the Lord will be your everlasting light. However, your sun will never set again. Your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. What he's saying there is infinite and increasing joy. Everything good that comes from the sun will be yours. It'll never stop, and it'll be uh, overwhelmed because it's never been about the sun. It has always been about the God who made the sun and set us to orbit it and provides life and heat and warmth and goodness. What he's saying, don't, don't, don't be overly literal. He's saying it's going to be amazing. It's going to be constant goodness. All your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever. What land? This land. This is all happening here. Isaiah 60 is not about someplace else. Isaiah 60 is about this place. And when John borrows it, he's still talking about this place. Kelly Sue? Good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit hard to tell from exactly what Isaiah is saying. Kelly's question, in case you couldn't hear, is are these nations coming voluntarily or are they, are they captives? Um, and so the, the, the big bad, the big broad picture of how we, we would answer that, like not just in Isaiah 60, is that God will, by one means or another, rid the world of all his enemies. He will either make his enemies his friends or he will destroy his enemies. This, this, this is the whole thing. And so these people that are coming are coming. In, in Isaiah 60, ultimately they're coming because they have seen his greatness and seen his glory. Now the, the means by which they get there, we don't know. But by the, time it, by the time we get to it in Revelation, unquestioningly, it is that they have become his friends. And that all of the beauty and all of the goodness of throughout, we'll, we'll get to this when we apply this in a second, throughout all of the world, will become, it'll become voluntarily. But that's because all those that refuse to bend the knee have been, have been done away with, right? So that's, that's what he's ultimately, ultimately seeing. Does that, does that make sense? Because he, he had said earlier, those that won't, look, if you look up, where was it, Kelly? It was, uh, he says... Yeah. That that well, it is. They are conquered, and they, but but in the same way that we are conquered. Like like I have been 
conquered. So Jesus tells this story. He says, listen, if you see a king coming against you with like 10,000 troops and you've got 5,000 troops, do the math, right? He says the kingdom of heaven is like a king who sees the armies coming against him. And you do the math and you realize, I will never, I will not win this. And so we bend the knee and we bow before him. And what we find is that the demand that he makes of us is abject surrender, right? It's unconditional surrender to him. And then what he gives us in return is endless joy and grace and beauty and mercy and love and kindness, right? But there is a very real sense that those that will not bend the knee, what it says here in, you see it in verse 12, Chicky? 12, 12. For the nation or kingdom that will not serve you will perish. It will be utterly ruined. And so that's real. We see, these nations see, we have two options. I can, I can come under his gracious provision or I can be destroyed by his wrath. Choose A is, is kind of the theme of that. And then, we'll, and we'll see how this plays out in Revelation when we get there. Okay, good? So, I forget where I was. Um, verse 20, 21. Okay, your sun will never set, your moon will wane no more, the Lord will be your everlasting light, your days of sorrow will end, all your people, 21, will be righteous, they will possess the land forever, they are the shoot that I have planted, the work of my hands for the display of my splendor. And the least of you will become a thousand, the smallest a mighty nation. I'm the Lord, and this time I will do it swiftly. Okay. So, do you believe me that this is where this is coming from? It's Isaiah 60 that John is, is picking up. Okay. What does, it, what does it mean in terms of future implications that the glory of the nations will be brought into the city? This is really the idea that I want you to ponder, because I think it is absolutely fascinating. What does that mean? And we can just kind of work it around for a little bit. The glory of the nations will be brought into this new place. But everything good is going to be in, one, in that one place. That's it, Robin. Everything good. Okay? What about good things built by unbelievers? Will we have access to it in the world to come? If it's good. Yeah. If it's good. We will. What this is saying is, so God has created a world, and, he, and he's populated it with people of diverse cultures who, who have different gifts, different abilities, who create different things of beauty, different, more art and music and food and dance and, and technology and everything, medicine, everything. He's creating all of these amazing things throughout the world through people. And one day, all of the best of it is going to get filtered out and brought in. And it will be ours forever. Okay? Now, this may seem strange to you, but there is actually a very, very strong historical precedent for it. Kelly? Okay. So, do you remember what, what the nature of the promise was? What, what made the promised land so great? Why was it such a hookup that, that, that the Israelites got to take the promised land? That's it. It's all there. Listen, listen to how the promise is described. This is Deuteronomy 6. Okay? This, what, what he did in the past is what he will do in the future. And I just think this is so interesting. Deuteronomy 6.10 says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with, and here it is, with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, and wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you don't forget the Lord, 
who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The, the, the beauty of the promised land is that it was populated. There's wells and olive groves and cities and good things, right? And then he says it again later on in Joshua 24. He says, so I gave you a land on which you didn't toil and cities that you did not build and you live in them and you eat from vineyards and from olive groves that you didn't plant. Now, fear the Lord. Serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods that your forefathers worshipped beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. Because what, what he did in the past, he's going to do again. And the world to come, sometimes we have this sense that in the world to come, it's going to be like, I don't know, the 800s or something, right? They're all working with like rakes and hoes, you know? It's just this super agrarian. I don't think any of that's true. Whatever the best thing that Elon Musk invents in the next 20 years, right, we're going to, we get to work on. And maybe, he, maybe he'll be there. Maybe he has or will surrender to Christ and he'll bring, and we'll have his mind as well. But if not, we get whatever he invents, right? Now, it may be supplanted by things that somebody else invents, but all of the good stuff, whatever, um, who wrote Hamilton? What's the dude's name? Lynn Manuel. Lynn something Manuel? Whatever. Miranda. Whatever that dude writes in his brilliance, in his incredible genius to make things, like, we get it all. Everything beautiful, everything good, the wealth of the nations is brought in, and it's ours to enjoy. Kelly Sue. I think also the significance of that isn't just simply that we get the benefit of all this glory of wealth of the other people, but also that this is, this is the end. This is Revelation 22. This is the final kingdom, and the, the king with no rival gets all the glory. That's right. And in case you couldn't hear, Kelly's saying that, that what this means is that all of this excellence, all of this beauty, all, everything supreme in every culture of the world is brought in as a tribute to the king. He has no rivals. It's all his. And when I say that we get it, the only reason that we get it is because it's his and he gives it to us, that he will share with us all of the tribute from every culture in the world that comes to him. And it will be this incredibly heterogeneous mix of beauty, however it's been found, of technology and insights and learning and delight from everywhere in the world. It all gets centralized and offered to Christ. And then he turns and he shares it with us, with whom he is invited to, to co-reign. So hang on a second, Kelly. Bill? Saying, how about uh, all the things that are going to be discovered and worked on after we're there? Right. Never mind. And so not only that, but we don't stop at that point. We have every reason to believe that from this point on, we now have humanity working in cooperation without sin, without any of the things that like ruin everything. And I'm sure there will be more songs written. There will be more sculptures made. There will be more techno technological improvements. There will be more fun things to do, more beauty, more discovery with all of the wisdom from every mind and culture that God has redeemed and called to himself. And it's just going to be really, really good. Okay. Kelly Sue? I, I just want to continue the... 
say, this is what it means to be X country. But I think it's so cool because that's not diminished in, in God's kingdom because you'll still have your, your cultural identity. Individualism, absolutely. Because he, we are a reflection of him. That's right. That's exactly right. Everything that we see, everything that we will have, that's why Revelation really, I mean, oftentimes when we talk about the unity in the body of Christ, we go to Revelation because it's a revelation of the language of people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation were there worshiping before his throne. And it means they're, gonna be, they're not all going to be dressed like an American in, 19, in 20, 2020, right? There's going to be all the beauty of all the cultures that are all reflecting some aspect of him, right? Because we all, we see, I see something true of Christ. There's something in my cultural background that allows me to see something that maybe somebody else doesn't see, but somebody else has a different set of experiences and they're able to see a different angle of his beauty and his greatness. And so we get to partake of all of it, right? We're going to get it all. Uh, there's a couple of hands somewhere in here. Yeah, Debbie? I think it's so cool how Isaiah 60, 20 says that there will be no sun or moon. And in the very beginning, there was light. But it was not the sermon. Yes, that's right. That goes all the way back to the very, very beginning. That's right, because he is the light. So God creates, did you ever notice this? That God, in Genesis, God created light prior to the creation of the sun, right? So he doesn't need the sun to be the light, although it very well may be that we're continuing to orbit around it. But he is the source of all things and all of the good stuff we're going to get in him, okay? So here's the two things that I want you to grab because we're almost out of time. Uh, well, actually, was there one more hand? And then I can share one more thought here on this. No, no, no. Okay. So not only do we get all of the good stuff, and you get that very, pretty clearly in Isaiah 60, um, and, then, and, he, and he pulls it in here into Revelation 21. It's not just that all the good stuff is brought in, but what, what else happens in Isaiah 60? Besides the good stuff coming in, what else does he say? What else? Is, you almost kind of break down the promises of Isaiah 60 in two ways. Good stuff comes in. What else happens? Yes, okay. So there's enormous joy. And what's the cause of the joy? What's happening to this people that, that fills their hearts with joy? Exiles. What is it? Exiles return. The exiles return. Okay, and we're going to pick that as a very specific example of this. That all the bad stuff comes undone. Your children that were banished, your children come in. Your sons and your daughters return. All these things that these kings that had oppressed you, well, they're gonna, we're going to flip it around, and they are now going to serve you. And essentially, to quote Tolkien, all the sad things come untrue. And what, what Isaiah is pointing out to us and what John is kind of is tempting us with and drawing us and filling us with hope is this beautiful idea that all the sad things come untrue. Um, for my money, one of the greatest little, I don't know, Janie, you can back me up or we can fight about this, but I'm going to say that the scene where Samwise wakes up after they've destroyed the ring on Mount Doom is one of the best little short passages of prose. This is an amazing scene. If you don't know it, then it will be better to read the whole, you know, re read about 1,200 pages to get to this paragraph. But this, this is why, this might be why Lord of the Rings was written. Okay, this is, for my money, this is the best scene. If you don't know, if you don't know the whole story... 
Oh, gosh. Let's see. There's a ring, and the ring has been imbued with wicked, evil power to control things. And if it falls into the hands of Sauron, who is like this chief, wicked, evil one, then he's going to destroy the world. He's just going to take it over and just ruin it. And so these humble little creatures called hobbits, the little shorties, they are somehow not as susceptible to the greed and the lust for power that the ring inflicts on human beings. And so at great, great cost to themselves, they take the ring and they march into the absolute heart of darkness and they throw it into a volcano. It's called Mount Doom um, because it can only be unmade in the place where it was made. And by their enormous act of courage, the world is made safe. But it's been a costly trip, a ruinous trip, a painful trip. And... As, uh, and they, they basically end up uh, falling asleep and everything is uncertain and it is dreadful and difficult. And then Samwise wakes up. It's not, not because it's been a dream. He wakes up somewhere else. And it says this. This is Revelation 21. This is it. When Sam awoke, he found that he was lying on some soft bed. But over him gently swayed wide beechen boughs. And through their young leaves, sunlight glimmered, green and gold. And all the air was full of a sweet, mingled scent. He remembered that smell, the fragrance of a lithian. Bless me, he mused, how long have I been asleep? For the scent had borne him back to the day when he had lit his little fire under the sunny bank. And for a moment, all else between was out of waking memory. He stretched and drew a deep breath. Why, what a dream I've had, he muttered. I am glad to wake. He sat up, and then he saw that Frodo was lying beside him and slept peacefully, one hand behind his head and the other resting upon the coverlet. It was the right hand, and the third finger was missing. Full memory flooded back, and Sam cried aloud. It wasn't a dream then where are we? And a voice spoke softly behind him in the land of Elithian and in the keeping of the king. And he awaits you. And with that, Gandalf stood before him, robed in white, his beard now gleaming like pure snow in the twinkling of the leafy sunlight. Well, Master Samwise, how do you feel? He said. But Sam lay back and started with open mouth and for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last, he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then, I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? And Gandalf says, a great shadow has departed. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter. The sound of pure merriment for days upon days without count. And it fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. But he himself burst into tears. Then as sweet rain will pass down a wind of spring and the sun will shine out the clearer, his tears ceased and his laughter welled up and laughing he sprang from his bed. How do I feel, he cried. 
well, I don't know how to say it. I feel, I feel, and he waved his arms in the air. I feel like spring after winter and the sun on leaves and like trumpets and harps and all the songs I have ever heard. That is what Revelation 21 is trying to say, that all the sad stuff will come untrue. And there will be merriment and laughter and joy, and it will never, ever, ever cease. You need to know it is coming. You need that anchor in your life, that the work that you are about is worth it. The sacrifices that you might make will bear fruit, that Jesus did not lie, that his promises will be fulfilled. But the 70 or 80 years you get, there's just not enough time for him to make you as happy as he means you to be. It will take him all of eternity to fill your heart with the joy that he intends to. So stay in the game. It is coming. It is worth it. And, and meditate on his promises and believe it's true. The sad stuff's coming undone and all will be well. All right? That's all for now. Let's pray. Lord, we lift you up. Hurry the day. Come soon. We long to see you. And would you give us the grace to be among those that are inviting your enemies to become your friends. And we pray for those that we love that don't yet know you, that they too might be partakers in this great joy. Would you open their eyes to see the depth of their need and the absolute richness that could be theirs if they bend the knee to you and come under your grace. We love you. Amen. Amen. All right, all for now. <laughs>